Hi there, I'm Lorraine. And I'm Rosie. And this is What If. We've got a fantastic guest today, haven't we? Yeah, I'm very excited. Really good. You know how everybody talks about somebody being inspirational? Well, our next guest really is. Katie Piper. What a joy to see you. Oh, How are you. you? I'm really well, yeah. I'm a bit black coffeeed out. I'm on my third black coffee. Um, <laughs> We're all a bit but, like that. Yeah. We're all a bit like that. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Now, you are remarkable. People know, obviously, that terrible attack on you back in 2008. You've been through, I guess, you must lose count of the operations. It's got to be about 300. Yeah, I mean, I think... Wow. That, well, I stopped counting at the 300. Jeez, so, Katie. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's one of these things, though, because this obviously this podcast is what if, and it's kind of like you've got the ultimate what if, because what if that hadn't happened to you, you wouldn't have done all the incredible things that you have done. And I know you're a very positive person, and you sort of look upon it in a, in a try to look upon it in a very positive way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because now more so than ever, I think a lot of people could relate to the emotional side of what I went through in terms of my life changing forever in an instant because I think a lot of people felt like that in the pandemic it did feel quite yes. sudden you know there was a lot of changes for a lot of people and sometimes something catastrophic or traumatic can be the catalyst for change and it is unwelcomed change at the time but there is this massive what if around it and Often the difficult things that happen to us in life can be saving us from something far more difficult. Mm. You know, mm. when I think of things ending and being final and then new things beginning, actually, it's always just a revolving door, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's how you can feel optimistic because an ending really is just paving way for something else. But we just have to trust in that process. Mm. You've been so tested, though. That's the thing. More than just about anybody that I know, you know, the things that you've had to go through. Yeah, it's funny how you look at it because I don't feel like that because I, I always think like, so if I think about myself like medically, I can see in my right eye, but not in my left. Mm. So that always feels like I'm the lucky one because I know other people that lost sight in both eyes after an acid attack. So I always feel like I get the better outcome. And I always feel in terms of being tested that it's really helped me build a resilience that I didn't have and probably wouldn't have built until a lot later in life. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's been fortunate in, in that way, which sounds a bizarre thing to say. But then I think it's important to be honest and say no one wakes up from a life-changing event feeling like that in that moment. And there's a, there's a lot of years yeah. behind that of a support network, professional help. You know, it looks different for everybody, but it's not instant. And we were thinking as well what would happen if what you would be doing if that hadn't happened to you. I mean, what were you doing at the time? <laughs> Mum, don't listen to this part. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd probably be in a lot of debt if I wasn't doing what I was doing now. I mean, I was living in London in a sort of shared house where me and my friends all rented a bedroom each. And we were all sort of, you know, aspiring. So we were going to auditions and we were doing promo jobs of giving out leaflets and free samples and shopping centres in between. And I suppose, like modern day now, we wanted to be famous, you know. Mm. And I think that became a very strong ambition and it became very blinkered as well and it was a real a tunnel vision thing and I doubt I would have made it. You know, when you really look at the odds of people becoming famous, mm. I didn't have a talent in terms of going to stage school. I wasn't a singer, I wasn't a dancer. So, you know, my only qualification was a beauty therapist. So I, I probably would have ended up opening up a salon or working for somebody else in a mm. spa or something like that. So interesting, isn't yeah. it? Did you ever think you would be a campaigner? 
No, and I, I think majority of people that campaign, it has to be from lived experience. Yeah. You yeah. know, it has to be a sense of injustice directly comes to you or your family because campaigning is very draining and frustrating and it is relentless. I, I know people do arrive in terms of bill changing, law changing, but you never really arrive when you campaign because it's always on to the next part and it's always widening it. So I think you have to feel so strongly about what you stand for. And, you know, particularly for me, it was change and it was within the NHS and the medical world. And that was full of red tape and politics. And my voice is only a patient voice. You know, I don't have a medical background. So it wasn't an easy easy path to walk down you know it wasn't like fundraising for children or animals or something that's really appealable to people and, and perhaps easier to influence yeah mm. no I understand that for sure but you've done a remarkable job absolutely remarkable job it's been and and even when you were getting treatment and and we can't begin to imagine what that was like in the pain uh, and everything that you went through but it was really pioneering wasn't it I mean you were you were almost like testing things out yeah it was, it was amazing what they did incredible I became so interested in, in the medical yeah. side because I think firstly you know I hadn't really heard of an acid attack I don't think until it happened to me um, I don't think a lot of people did yeah. no yeah. I mean you think now sadly you do you do mm -hmm. hear about it quite often but that was 2008 and I'd never heard of it and um, Maybe if I sort of scratched the surface, I, I'd heard about it maybe in other continents, perhaps in Asia, honour crimes, yes. you know, more of a, a cultural thing against women. So when I went on to have this treatment, I knew sort of, you know, a burn survivor, someone like Simon Weston would have skin grafts and I assumed that would be my treatment. But I had quite a pioneering procedure where because it's a corrosive substance, you know, you think with fire you could put it out, maybe minimise the damage. With me, all the um, four layers of the skin were destroyed and also the subcuticus layer, which is the fatty layer that sits on the muscle and then you have the skeleton underneath. Mm. So in places, um, my burn went through the muscle and down to the skeleton. So it was it was a very, very deep burn. So what I had to do is have all of my old face removed because obviously it, it, the tissue was dead, so you would have got infected and you would have died of you know blood poisoning or sepsis. So there was literally, they had to start from the beginning with a man-made dermal substitute. So I always make the analogy of thinking of a house when you get the foundations before you get the bricks and the scaffolding. And this foundation is made of collagen and elastin taken from a cow. So I was, Ooh. yeah, cue all the moody cow jokes. My, my <laughs> face is made out of a cow. Um, oh. And then what they did is they shaved my head and they took a one sheet skin graft. So if you think about where your bra strap sits, it starts there and it goes all the way down past my buttocks. They removed that large sheet of skin and they sewed it on on the top of my head and just past my bust where the burn went down to so that it wasn't like a sort of patchwork quilt. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it was also around about this time I found out how hairy my bum was. Right. <laughs> because in the in the healing process I got all this kind of you know like the fuzzy peach down yeah, 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 yeah. I got all these long blonde hairs and you think normally you go for like sort of a top lip and chin wax where if I go to the salon I have to get threading done like here and here and like there's long hairs coming out here and like here and it your just, eyes and your nose yeah. oh my goodness no moustache but just <laughs> all these random places um, so yeah and then they just it was like being Mr Potato Head you know they everything you see was rebuilt so like my nose is my upper right rib my nostrils are all the cartilage from in my ear my eyelids are my groin so if you pinch the skin on your bikini line it's as thin as the lid skin 
Um, right. And even the inner lid. Remember at school, there was always someone that would turn their lids inside yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you yeah, see yeah. the pink bit. They had yeah, to yeah. rebuild the pink bit. So they took all the flesh from inside my cheeks to rebuild that. My lips were turned outwards. Um, it, it, it is actually really incredible, mm. you know, that it can be done. I had hair transplants for my eyebrows and I lost my hair on that side. That was transplanted. I had a very large burn here, actually, where I turned. So they removed the burn and where the skin stretches. They right, pulled... right at the top of your arm. Yeah. yeah, and they made a sort of Harry Potter kind of scar, which obviously is quite in fashion now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It, and I, I know we talk about the NHS, particularly last 18 months and how incredible they are, but that was all on the NHS, you know. Amazing. That had been in another incredible. country. What would my parents have done? They wouldn't have been able to afford no. that. Millions of pounds. Yeah. Millions and millions of pounds. Yeah. It's so. incredible, isn't it? But yeah. because you had that, and I guess they were trying out techniques on you, mm. you must have helped so many other people that are coming after you. You know, have had various burns and, and, and been in accidents or been attacked or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that was the interesting part, that my story sort of went round the world, not just in sort of tabloid, but medically. It, yes, it yes, got, yes, You know, it got published mm. in journals. Mm. I travelled abroad. My surgeon went on to do a lot of lectures and training. He then went on a charity year to Pakistan to help women and children out there. And, yeah, it did change not just reconstruction, but the aftercare, the rehabilitation, the scar management, the physiotherapy. And hopefully it also changed perception around appearance and self-worth as well. Hmm. We were going to talk about your documentary you did, My Beautiful Face. Were you approached to do that? It's really funny, actually, because I was just thinking about you two working together. And um, I, I had to go home and live with my mum and dad. I, w I was living independently before, but I had to go and live with them. And um, they, uh, they've they never been on telly before at this point. And I wanted to document my journey. And originally that was in a book. And I was reported in the press as Girl A originally because there had been a rape. I was allowed to be anonymous until I decided otherwise. So I did actually stay anonymous for, I think, the first nine or ten months because I was very agoraphobic and anxious. And the trial took a long time as well, and I just kind of wanted to, to get past that first. So it was my therapist that told me to write, just privately, because I'm really lucky that my parents, you know, supported me in every way they could, and I could talk to them. But I do think in life there's some things we don't want to burden people with, and sometimes there are deepest, darkest thoughts, but it doesn't mean we're going to action them, that they're just, they just need to be expressed, you know. So mm. the therapist said to me, if you write, you will unburden that, you will get rid of self-pity, it will be cathartic. And and she was right. I, I just didn't stop after that. I wrote and wrote and wrote. And I would constantly submit this manuscript to publishers. And I would either get no reply or like a printed template rejection letter. And then I started recording myself, and it was this is like 2008, so I didn't even have an iPhone. It was like a handy cam with a cassette thing that goes in it. It's so old-fashioned, <laughs> yeah. And no, you couldn't even reverse it, so I was just guessing that I was in the <laughs> shot. Um, and I did all this, and then um, I finally got a yes for a publishing deal. And then when that book came out, then Channel 4 approached me and said about doing a documentary. And the first thing my mum said is, they're not filming in our house and I'm not being in it. <laughs> and, and then that slowly went down to, um, well, they can film in the house, but me and dad will sit upstairs in the bedroom and lock the door. And, and then it changed to, we'll be in it in the background washing up, but we won't speak. And then the final documentary was them doing master interviews to camera. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it was new territory for us all, I think. Oh, very mm. much so. It changed perception, though. That's the thing, It's because beauty is such a subjective thing anyway, isn't it? What somebody will find beautiful, somebody else doesn't. Mm -hmm. Or 
you know, it, it depends on so many different things. And I, I thought that was great because you got people questioning our idea of what beauty is. Yeah. You know, what, what is it? Is it, is it? is it just the outside? Is it the inside? Is it a combination of the two? Well, it's such an interesting question because I suppose when you look at what happened to me, you know, it wasn't a car accident or a house fire. It was a violent attack with a clear intent. And I suppose mm. the, the people that did it to me did interpret that for a woman, it's everything you are. Yeah. And it's all you have to offer and it, and all your worth is wrapped up in it. And I suppose that was their error because you can only really touch what you can see, you know, the surface. And actually that changes over time. Okay, okay not so suddenly as it did to me, but it does change over time. And I, I do feel it's a, it's a bit like art, isn't it? We could all go to an art gallery now and what, what I want to buy and what you want to buy could be completely yeah. different. And I think when I did the documentary, all I'd ever had in public was very negative reaction to my appearance. And my appearance was very different to how it is now. I had to wear a plastic Perspex mask yeah, for two years. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and I think in a way that was sort of more sort of stop you in your tracks than the disfigurement for some people because they'd just never really seen that before. So when I did the documentary, I didn't really know how people were going to treat me. And social media wasn't massive then. I think there was Facebook, but no Instagram. And I didn't have any social media at all. So the night before the programme was about to go out, and I was a bit naive about television, I sort of rang the director and said, actually, I regret the whole year of filming and I don't want the programme to go out. <laughs> and oh, she was no. like, well, <laughs> that is quite short notice to say <laughs> that. Um, and because I did think that it would make my life worse. And then the next day, uh, my sister said, right, because my sister was, she's younger than me, but she became like my big sister. And she said, we're going straight out to coffee. We're going to go to Debenhams and go to co yeah. go for coffee. And mm -hmm. I said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to go out for a week until the people have forgotten the programme. And she was like, you just think people will forget it in seven days. And so she dragged me out. And it was women my mum's age, then women my age came up to me. And they were very respectful. Some women just came up to me, smiled, nodded their head and walked off. You know, it wasn't, yeah. wasn't intrusive. Because, just kind of, I see you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. And they knew, actually, that wasn't a scripted reality programme. It was mm. an observational documentary and I still was very much that person and I was still quite nervous mm. and quite shy and I think you could see that in my body language as well. And another one of those amazing moments in life where I have seen the most evil in mankind mm -hmm. but I have seen almost a Mexican wave of compassion and empathy and kindness and it really restored my faith in society and I think that's an example of when television can be so powerful and so positive. Oh, very much so. Mm. I'm wondering what if you hadn't done that documentary? Because that opened a lot of doors, didn't yes. it? Because all of a sudden you did become what that little girl wanted to be. You, know, you did become famous, which was a weird way to say it, but it's true. Yeah. Mm. So what if you hadn't made that, that documentary? And all those doors remained closed in a way. It's a big what if, Yeah, actually. it's huge, um, isn't it? Yeah, because I, did, I left school and I went to a tech college and I did an NVQ in hair and beauty and I worked as a beautician in my sort of teens and 20s. And, you know, I had this real nature of getting bored and moving on every couple of years. And then I decided to go to night school and study to teach anatomy and physiology within uh, massage and beauty therapy. So my 
my my mum's a teacher, so she was like, finally a good a good job. This is great. <laughs> um, and it was when I was studying doing that that I met a guy, and I started. It was my first sort of serious boyfriend, and he was studying, and then he was going to move back home to London where he was from. So this was down in Hampshire where mm. I grew up. And he said, I'll oh, come to London with me. And I, when I was young, I was a typical somebody from a small village. I was seeking excitement. I thought London was like gold paving stones. And, you know, <laughs> I think I'd watched a bit too much Oliver Twist and that, that kind of thing. And I thought, well, how exciting. Yeah, I don't want to be a teacher and work in a tech college. I'm going to London. And mm. I went to London. And that's when I got into this lifestyle of wanting to work in telly and do modelling and go to all these auditions. But no real qualifications or backup plan you know it was very very typical of me at that time of, of sort of almost a bit too enthusiastic and, and a bit too positive and optimistic about stuff so when everything happened in, in the attack I just thought oh my goodness everything I was doing right from the beauty therapy to all the auditions was almost around my my levels of confidence and self-esteem, that gift of the gab, and then my appearance. And then even my hands have been burnt and damaged. So the practicalities of doing beauty therapy of my hands, being blind in one eye, beauty therapy is very sales and still based on your appearance. So I don't know. I, I think I, I became really interested in people and connecting with people. So I think maybe I would have tried to go back to studying and looked at maybe going into counselling. You know, and I always think now, actually, the career I'm in is always uncertain. And that is something I probably would like to explore one day. So. Yeah, I think that's I think you'd be brilliant at that anyway. Yeah, I thank you. you know, yeah, you, you really would because you've got such empathy and you're you're interested in all, all the programmes that we've seen as well. You know, you've got yeah. that. You've got that that sort of connection mm. with people, which is yeah, I don't think you can teach that. I think you've, you've either got it or you or you haven't. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It was interesting about your, your family and how they helped you. You talked about your little sister becomes your big sister. And you and your mum work together. Like, me and Rosie work together, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> we work together. How, how is that? <laughs> I think we're fine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's not like a question. Very <laughs> high pitch there. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But working with your mum. Yeah. It's really interesting because I'm 38 now and when everything happened to me, I was 24 and I'm a mum of two now. Mm. So when I gave birth to my first child, my first thing I said to my mum was, so sorry about the past. <laughs> 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 my God, <laughs> I feel awful. <laughs> Especially now my eldest is seven. Like, it's, I think it's every few months I bring her up and like, really sorry about the past. Because <laughs> um, I was the teenager from hell, you know, and my parents couldn't have been better parents. They were so hands-on. My mum sacrificed a lot of her career to raise all three of us and they both worked very hard. We, you know, we didn't have a privileged life and they then gave up their lives again when after I was attached, you know, that my mum took compassionate leave from her school and they didn't know how long that was going to go on for. Like They were told by the hospital that I would be dependent on them forever and they were willing to forget about their own needs for me. So, you know, they never stopped parenting me even in into those 20s. So, it was a, a problematic relationship me and my mum had. We clashed, we fell out, we wouldn't speak sometimes, largely down to me. And so again, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about, you know, the what ifs. And yeah. I, I do feel like that was one of the positives. It strengthened my mm. ties with my mum. Mm. And we've gone on to write a book together and, and work together. And now she's a brilliant grandma. And, and now she's my friend. You know, that's our relationship now. She's yeah. my trusted friend who I can be real with and my confidant. And I know not everyone has that so I feel really fortunate to have that yeah. 
And you think of what she must have gone through as well. I mean, obviously you're going through this. She's got to be strong for you. Mm. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. anything like that happening and how you've got to... You've yeah. got to be strong for your daughter, but also try and hide your feelings because you don't want her to feel bad, you know? She must yeah. have been like that. I still feel really guilty about that and it really hurts me, actually. So when we wrote a book together, it was called Mother to Daughter and the editor wanted us to write our own first drafts mm -hmm. and then swap and sort of read them. Oh. And my mum is very stoic. She's very private. I don't... <sighs> probably only seen her cry about twice and it was silent you know it wasn't yeah. I've never seen her as the Kardashians say ugly cry yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah and that's where my mum is sort of strong but silent so when I read my mum's first draft I read things that I didn't know had happened things I didn't know she'd felt that way it made me realise my mum has a lot of visuals that I don't because I was in a coma I was unconscious she has a lot of visual memories of me that I never saw and as my girls have grown up, I just, it, it kind of frightens me. I, I look at them and think, I, I couldn't have done what my mum and dad did if someone did that to my daughter, you know, and I don't know what I would do. I, I think I couldn't trust myself of what I, what I would do. So, yeah, I, I admire and respect them, but I, I do feel a little bit guilty. Mm. Mm. It's understandable. I kind of had the same, when I read your book, I kind of had the same thing because... I, it was the first time reading about your miscarriage. Yeah. And you'd obviously never told me about that. Well, you were like so young then. Five. You were only a baby yourself. But it's kind of the same same thing. Yeah. Feelings I never thought that you had. Yeah, yeah you don't... In a way. And, and sometimes, we, sometimes we can write things down. It's like you were saying, Katie, about writing things down, you know, immediately after you were able to, you know, mm. after after the attack, you were writing things down to get them out. And sometimes we, we don't... We don't vocalise those things. Mm. We don't maybe talk about them as much as we should. Yeah, but I don't know if you were brought up like this, but I was brought up where my parents didn't tell me adult problems. And oh, I don't get told anything now. Yeah, no, I, I am the same. No, I do not. No, I don't either. I don't. And, and it's just my mum and dad's way of parenting. And I, I realise now it was protecting me. But it was always very much, this is the child stuff, this is the adult stuff. Mm -hmm. and we don't burden the children with it. And we do sort of put on a brave face, which I know now the culture is more about speaking and talking about absolutely everything but that's just not how my parents are and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it's made me a little bit more robust actually mm -hmm. and I do do the same with my children I do not burden my children with my problems I wouldn't really try to hold back from crying in front of them um, mm -hmm. because it's it's just the way our family is and I, I think every family is, is different you know? No, very much so but I... I, I hear exactly what you're saying I suppose we were a bit like that with you you still are like that with me I do not get told anything <laughs> yeah I don't honestly. you get told yeah. what you need to know <laughs> was it hard for you then for Rosie reading the book were you, yeah yeah, yeah I, it was it yeah. was I guess it must have been like that for, for both of you as well you know yeah. there is there is that thing and it's the protection thing you just want to protect protect all the time yeah well you know, I, I know my mum wants to read mine you know my daughters will want yeah, to read mine yeah they will yes yeah. they will but it, it, you know it's really not going to be age appropriate at least until late late Teens, I mm, think. Definitely. Um, yeah. And they're, you're just their mum. I mean, yeah. they, you know, they won't really, see, you know what kids are like, they won't really see anything at all. No, it was quite funny, actually. The eldest, as she got into sort of year three, I remember her kind of saying, 
no one else's mum is burnt. Isn't it weird? Because <laughs> uh, that's just I her know. reality. That's what yeah. she oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what she thinks. And it's just always been, and especially when I was breastfeeding, because I've got a skin graft on my chest, you know, right from birth, they would always touch it, almost like a comfort blanket because mm. it's so textured. And they would always stroke it when I was feeding them. So it's always been such a big part of me and them together yeah. um, that it's there's never been a moment or a reaction. I suppose it's a bit like when somebody's adopted and they always know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Th- there is a, a, di- a difference. They know it's different. It's an open dialogue in the house. But it's not weird because it's always been. You know? yeah. yeah. It's been the way. Yeah. We need to talk about your lovely husband. Because oh. <laughs> there's a story about how you met. Oh, really? Okay. I love how you met. Yeah. <laughs> Which story is this? The Coldplay gig. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. It was so embarrassing, though. <laughs> God. Okay. Well, so um, so I'd been single for quite a long time, at first by choice, and I wasn't really sure if I ever wanted a relationship again. Um, I wanted a family, and I was thinking about how I would do that. And then when I did want a boyfriend, I then still stayed single for a long time, but not by choice. You know, I, I tried to meet people and date, and had some not very nice experiences. And I think then that sort of made me feel like, oh no, because sometimes it, depending on what you do with your free time, if you spend all your time on Instagram, you start thinking everybody feels this way and judges people in this way. And, you know, as I started trying to do things and I went to like acting lessons, not to be an actress, but to try and have a hobby that would help with confidence and eye contact Mm -hmm. and to try and meet people. I joined a running club to try and meet people. (laughs) If I was too out of breath, I couldn't talk to anyone. (laughs) Um, and, and And then obviously with my voluntary work, you know, through volunteering, you get to meet a lot of different types of people and I just never met anyone and I thought oh I guess it really does matter and if you are different then nobody wants to be with you and and you know it's funny when you opened the podcast saying about me being inspirational it became a bit of a noose around my neck in the dating world because guys would meet me and almost like pat me on the back and be like, you're so inspiring and my mum loves you. And, you know, can I bring my sister along to the dinner because she wants to meet you? And Oh, that's a bit old, isn't that's it? Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of baggage then, isn't and, it, that you've got? Yeah, and it's awkward yeah. because people are being kind. They're not being nasty, but... No, but it's not like a normal day. You know, yeah. that you just wanted to have a normal yeah. night out. Yeah. And it becomes something else. Yeah, and it was damaging and it made me feel foolish and embarrassed and... So fast forward um, some time, my friend Sam was dating this guy and uh, he, in his friendship circle, was my, well, he wasn't my husband then, Richie he's called. He was in that friendship circle and it was the days of Blackberry Messenger. Do you remember? Oh, whenever, oh yeah. yeah. Those big, yes. the little uh, rollable. The pearl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How should you, uh, you know, I didn't need a Blackberry Messenger. Like, I, I was on like disability <laughs> benefit, I think, at the time. I wasn't running a business. And he asked my friend for my BBM pin. And that was oh when you gosh. then Blackberry Messenger chat. Do you remember? BBM. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I was a bit like, well, no, because he's probably just wants to tell me I'm inspirational and I, I just don't care, you know. Yeah. I know that's yeah. really horrible. No, not at all. And totally understandable. So we ended up, I, but I still did. <laughs> so we, <laughs> and we ended up sort of chatting and then it was, the, it was still the time of Blockbuster, right? So we'd meet up and go to Blockbusters. We'd go and get films together and, we, and we'd just do stuff and it, it never 
really sort of went anywhere because I'd had so much rejection to that point. I didn't mm. want to sort of embarrass myself. And then one night, uh, <laughs> he we went to the cinema and he got in my car and I drove him to his car because he'd parked further away. It was in Westfield in West London. And he leaned in to do what I thought was kiss me, right? So I thought, oh my God, someone's going to kiss me. But it's only been about 100 years. Here we go. <laughs> Can't remember what to do. Um, and I leaned in to kiss him, but he actually had just more, he's from Essex, so he'd more leaned in to like kiss, kiss, side to oh, side. Oh, right, one of those. And I'd kind of like bashed him on the nose. I was just like, <laughs> oh God, this is awful. And I drove off and thought, I will never see him again. He will never contact me again. <laughs> and now we're married to two kids. Um, and, then, and then from there, that's it. The next time he saw me, we did actually kiss and, and we sort of dated, but we never said we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, at this time, you know, my charity was up and running and Simon Cow was the patron. And I never really told Richie any of this because I felt like it might look a bit boastful. And I also didn't want to go into that territory of you're so inspirational. So I, I tried to talk more about his work and stuff when we were together. And then that weekend, short notice, uh, one of the girls I knew at Sony through Simon uh, BBM'd me. And she said, <laughs> she said, oh, you got any plans at the weekend? Because Coldplay are playing at the Emirates and they want to invite you. And I was just wow, like, yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, right, okay, that's pretty cool. Wow, okay. I said, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Do you mind if I bring my friend? She said, yeah, yeah, two tickets. Just turn up at the Emirates, ring me when you're outside. So I rang up Richie and said, oh, I tried to make it low-key. I just said, oh, my friend's got these tickets. Do you want to come? And typical Richie was like, I think their music's a bit depressing, babe. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, then. Yeah. Okay. If it's free. <laughs> I was just like, okay, fine. I really hope they're not listening to this. Um, so we get to the Emirates, and I just wore, like, trainers, jeans, and a hoodie, because, you know, it's a gig. And we met the lady there and, and she said, oh, come into the VIP bar, have some drinks. And we, and it was proper VIP, all free drinks and everything. And I didn't expect all that. So we're having quite a good time, good atmosphere. Then she said, oh, Chris wants to meet you before the show starts. So just come backstage. So I thought, oh, maybe Chris is um, security and we have to get searched. And, oh, and no. then And then, because you just, I just didn't think, I've never met him before, you know, I just didn't yeah. think. And I thought, oh, maybe Chris is going to pat us down and check we're not crazy and then sit, sit us down. So we go into this dressing room and it's Chris Martin. And I was just like, oh my god, I I feel like such a I feel like a bit of a tosser. You know? like, <laughs> like it, it looks like I'm like bringing Richie along and like showing off. And then out of nowhere, Gwyneth Paltrow comes in. Stop it. And I know I, I sort of went like a bit. Oh, this is before the um, yes, before coupling. the uncoupled. Yeah. 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 So this would have been like 2012, right. like okay. year of the Olympics. Yeah. And um, I just went a bit mute and overwhelmed and embarrassed. And, and Chris, really lovely, is chatting away to me. And he's been a big supporter of my charity. So we had a bit of common ground. And Richie's quite muscly and always wears tight clothes because he's from Essex, um, <laughs> which I have changed now. I make him buy his own size. And um, he, just, <laughs> he just turned to Richie and he said... Uh, so uh, what do you do of all the muscles then? He went, are you, are you her boyfriend or a security guard? <gasps> and, and I had all that, you know, and your face goes hot. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, oh my God. And we both just went, uh, yeah, <laughs> and like sort of laughed. And then we walked off, didn't acknowledge it, had the gig. Then we got invited to this after party as well, which we didn't expect. And we, and we got quite drunk, really. And, <laughs> and then he just said, oh, looks like I'm your boyfriend now then, am I? And, oh, yeah. and then that was the and chat. that was it? Yeah. Um, oh, and Chris Martin was Cupid? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was nice because I think for anyone, when you date, you never really know and you have to have the chat. You have to have the chat. Yeah, you mm -hmm. have to formalise. And, and because I had not been that successful, I, I don't think I ever would have formalised it, you know? So, right, right. Yeah. So it just needed a wee nudge. Yeah. And also you were friends before, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I was friends with Steve for about a year. 
yeah. before. And I think that you sort of know where you are. It's nice, isn't it? And I he's think. not wanting to be with you just because he can get to Chris Martin's VIP yeah. all the day stop it. And actually, my life in that sort of time of friendship hadn't been very glamorous. You know, I had had some operations on my nose and I'd had an infection and it was all a bit of a nightmare because it was still like the early years where you like shave the top of your leg and stuff. Yeah. And there was me like having operations, but it really showed me that Richie wasn't really phased by that. So mm -hmm. that, that was a good reference point, I think. Your foundation's brilliant. Thank it's a you. brilliant thing to have done and it's helped so, so many people. You must be, that must be one of the things you're most proud of. Yeah, I mean, it's named after me, but it's a very much a team of people. You know, I could not have done it by myself. And it was set up in 2010. And that was because I went abroad to France for a lot of treatment. And um, my social worker and my surgeon got me funding from the PCT Primary Care Trust. And in they will assess different cases and you will get some funding. So I got limited funding to access this rehabilitation. It's very much about, um, you know, if you think of somebody who's burnt, say, on their limbs, yes. their movement is restricted. Of course. Um, of so course. it's very much about your physical ability and quality of life. So we set the charity up because once we've been on telly, living in a small village, people were putting like £10 notes through mum and dad's no letters. Way. Oh, that's yeah. lovely. That's fantastic. But my mum and dad were like, you can't take that money. You, you <laughs> had no job. I was on benefits. And they're like, you can't take that money. You've had millions of pounds worth of treatment on the NHS. And they helped me open a HSBC charitable status bank account. Ah, okay. And they said, put the money there. And then because I carried on doing work in the public eye, the money never stopped. And, you know, when you're in the public eye, people want to send you endless stuff for free. And for me, the sort of things people wanted to give me for free was holidays and medical treatment and respite and trips away that I had had my fair share of, you know. Mm. And I was getting letters from people that hadn't and, and needed help. So as the charity went on, it became more and more formal and on the board became, you know, lawyers, HR people, medical experts. And then if you fast forward, like the 10, 11 years it exists, the rehab centre I went to in France now exists in this country. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. And patients go there fully funded and we get referrals from the NHS. We sit within the burn units in the NHS. So, yeah, it, it's been very hard to get there and it's been very difficult. But, yeah, I, I really should say it's not me. It is credit to the whole board because all those trustees do that for free because they are passionate and they care. So, mm -hmm. yeah, again, more amazing people. It's so. fantastic and life-changing yeah. for people. Yes. Absolutely life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we can appreciate as much as you can because you know. Well, do you know what? There's this wonderful quote that says, trauma is a part of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And That's I really, yep. yeah, I really yep. believe that in the people that I meet. You can't take away what's happened to people. No. But no. you, you can change the future, you know. No, absolutely. I loved the show that you did, Body Shop. Oh gosh, I, I thought it was really no, it was really good because it, it it sort of it was a greater understanding of people who, like you say, are different. Yeah, and it it was interesting because I was working with Channel Four and. Um, you know, we are having so many positive conversations around diversity within ethnicity, disability, mm -hmm. and, and particularly, you know, ITV, they are very uh, diverse and it's not a box tick, you know, it's across the board and, and it's it's really great. But I think back then, that was 2010 when I started working for Channel 4, 
we only really saw the Paralympics and we didn't really see, mm. see much else. So for them to take me on a sort of feature show, it was on at 10 o'clock at night and not talk about what happened to me and talk about something else. Yes. It, it was quite powerful and it, and it was great, you know, and it, it was something for me to get my teeth stuck into and to be proud of. But also it felt like it had some kind of sentiment to it, you know, talking to people about modifying themselves and was it the right or the wrong thing to do? Absolutely nobody ever listened to me. Everyone modified <laughs> themselves. Uh, and I think it was just a gateway for people to get free surgery on telly, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was it was it was a good show. It got people thinking, and that's that's yeah. the main thing, isn't it? And now, of course, you're on loose women. Yes, yeah, yeah, totally mm. different chapter yeah. in my life. I mean, Body Shockers was great, and I, I it went up to three series, so I did it for three years, and I had my first baby whilst doing it. Then life was different because I was away a lot filming, and that was hard with a newborn baby, hard with breastfeeding. And fast forward now, present day, doing daytime like that is just so brilliant because I can do the school run, I can be more present, I can sew all the labels in the pee kit in the evening. So yeah, life has changed and I, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to carve out and find roles that kind of suit who I am now. Do you find that people, I suppose it's different now, but when when you were first going out into the public, that people knew what to say to you? Because people are very worried about they don't want to offend you in any way. Yeah, but especially people, now, you don't know. No, but people also, yeah. but people are curious, aren't they? Yeah, because they want to know what's what's happened and how are you and you know and, and how do, how are you doing and especially as you know, I've I've seen you over the years and I've seen the incredible transformation. I mean, yeah. it's quite remarkable. But I have seen you before when I remember you had you had to have tubes on your nose. Yes, that's because, right. Because because of the scar tissue, uh -huh. and I don't know that people appreciate just how much you've been through to get to where you are. Yeah. Uh, it's such an interesting conversation because I think if you look at stuff online, so many people are talking about what's the right language around all kinds of differences yeah. mm -hmm. and, and when can you ask, what's the etiquette? And, and I think actually there's no wrong or right answer because I think for the person, it's how they feel on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And, and, and and you as the person with the curiosity, how do you know how they feel? You you just don't, do you? And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, the stuff that I need to get better at understanding and I, I'm trying to sort of educate myself and I'm definitely said the wrong things to people before or sort of edited stuff and deleted it and thought, well, maybe that's that's not right. So sometimes even now people can be inappropriate and intrusive to me. It very rarely comes from a nasty place. It probably comes from a clumsy sort of mm. desperate to do the right thing. And maybe it's a mixture now for me. Like if I think about people who I work with at the charity who aren't in the public eye, a lot of the reactions they get is because they look different. And I think mine's a dual thing of like, she looks a bit different. Oh, I've seen you on Loose Women, you know. So it could be one or, right. one or the other. But I think the thing I find hard is when I'm out with my children and people get a bit overwhelmed and they start saying stuff to me that frightens my kids. Oh, right. So, you know, and I, again, it's not on purpose. I think it's just they think, oh, there's someone I know. And they will come up and use inappropriate language they'll say things like I was raped too I know you were and then my oh, and it's really hard and I know I, I know they just haven't thought because it's the biggest thing that happened to them they know it happened to me and they had just have that moment of relating mm. so that can be hard to navigate but it was my choice to 
go public with everything that happened it was, to me. It was incredibly know. brave mm-hmm. to do that. It was, wasn't it? it? But it, it, it was, Katie. It, it really was. You and and you have again helped so many people by doing that. Yeah, I and mean, I don't re- I don't regret doing it because I've benefited too. And 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 then there's been the upside of helping other people. Absolutely. So I, you know, I would never shut the door on that. But yeah, it can. It, I mean, it's like it comes with funny stuff as well. So I like to be quite private out of my work. And um, someone came up to us in the street the other day and they said, "Oh my God, do you live around here?" Oh, so great to meet you. I said, oh, no, 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 just shopping, but don't live around here. Then my daughter was like, yes, we do. We live, we live at num- number blah, 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 on that road. And then it was like, and then we walked away. She said, why did you lie? You told me we should never lie. Oh, <laughs> so funny. Oh, that was so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's just so lovely. Yeah. For goodness sake. But you do, you're pushing boundaries all the time, which is which is fantastic. Mm. I mean, it, it really is. It's absolutely Well, absolutely you have to lovely. get more operations, or are you... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think for any burn survivor, it's mm-hmm. always ongoing, and that is because of the nature of damaged tissue. So skin grafts will always retract and shrink. So if you think of a facial burn, if you get retraction... So I've got a lot of retraction on my neck at the moment, which I'm just going to live with for now because I don't really want to have another operation, but eventually I'll have to have some more skin added there. But facially, you get retractions, like you said, in the nose, where the nostrils kind of shut down. When the lids retract, they they pull down and you lose the ability to blink. So I have had lid surgery this year, actually. Sometimes you can get retractions in your ears where the ears shut and things. So you need more skin added. You need stenting. Unfortunately, I have a lot of um, gastro surgery as well because I swallowed acid. I have a lot of esophageal damage. Mm. So I have sometimes, like, say, keyhole through my stomach or endoscopes, which isn't really common unless you swallowed, like, acid or bleach or something. So it is ongoing. But I mean, it it sounds a lot, but actually for me, it doesn't feel a lot because it gets less and less. Yeah. And I just accept that it was either that or, or not make it. And I'm really glad to be here. So, you know, I feel, I'm glad to not live in somewhere like America where I'd have to save up for this and get different insurance. You know, I really, when we talk about the NHS and when we were all clapping, I felt like that about the NHS for years, you know? Yeah. I was like, of I, I've been invisibly clapping for years. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, it, is a, it is amazing. I mean, you know, looking at you now, it's extraordinary. Mm. I'm so tired today as well. I feel rough but, you, you know, but it is it is absolutely incredible. I, I just yeah. wonder, and this might be a daft question, but you know how everybody goes on about skincare and beauty and mm. all of that sort of thing. For you, I mean, what do you just use normal products that anybody would, normal makeup that anybody would? Yeah, I mean, I'm a real beauty junkie. Well, of course, it's your, your background. Yeah. You love it. So always been like that. They always laughed at me in the Burns unit because I couldn't wear makeup for two years and I, and I had the face mask. And I used to put, like, glitter on the cheekbones of the face mask <laughs> nice. and then have these massive blow-dries because I'd had my head shaved. I only had hair, like, there. So just like, the back of your head? I look, I look like a cockatiel. Oh, I look like a really fancy cockatiel. <laughs> um, but it was my way of expressing myself and taking yeah. ownership and saying, I am glamorous and I will be glamorous coming out of ICU. So, yeah, I still do all, everything I did before. My skin is sensitive and it's dry and it's dehydrated but lots of people's skin is like mm-hmm. that. You know, I have problems with my eyes, so I have to be careful with sort of eye makeup in the eye and that kind of thing. Right, um, yeah. One of my biggest problems I have is I don't have a septum, so my nose constantly runs. You know, I don't know if this is a sad statement or if it's a positive statement, but just in the last three to four years, I've stopped remembering her, the, the old me, the old face. Mm-hmm. So I used to dream and she was me, and I've stopped seeing her in my dreams. 
So when I put the cream on my children's face now, I'm always like, oh, God, it's so squidgy because my face is really tough, you know. Mm. And I used to be able to remember what it feels like to wash a normal face. And, yeah, just last few years, the memory has gone now. And I wondered when it would go. And I don't really look at pictures or anything either. And I don't have any up. Mum has pictures of me in the house as a baby, but they took some of the others down and they have more like present day pictures. So, mm. yeah, I always separate it as two separate lives, two separate people. So I don't know if ever I would, I always think, because I have a Christian belief, so mm. I don't know if I would be reunited in heaven or what I will see, I don't know. It's it's a it's a weird one, actually. Yeah, that's so mm. interesting. That's mm. fascinating that you, you that you think like that. Yeah. Quite remarkable. But she's, it's like you've said goodbye to her. Yeah. In a really nice way. Yeah. yeah. In a very, very sort of loving way, you know, that, that was you then, this is you now, and this is, and I think that's a very, very positive thing. Do you know what it's like? It's when you have a really sudden breakup with somebody and it's traumatic, and then eventually you become friends again. Yes. <laughs> and it's fine. Yes. And it's yes. all right. Yeah. And you also, I know we talked, we've talked about this before, about affirmations mm. and things that you say to make yourself feel better and to yeah. feel more positive. And that's something that you love to share with, with all of us. Yeah, mm. I mean, I'm a very visual person, mm. um, and actually, you know, I have to be realistic that I wasn't positive and happy when this first happened. And I really had to sort of sort of to try and talk the talk before I could walk the walk. It was very emperor's clothing. So I used to sort of find all these quotes and affirmations and I'd write them on post-it notes, stick them all around the house. And it was having all these vigils that were kind of pushing me to say, there's no other way to be. You've got to be like this. And it works the other way where if you affirm negative stuff all the time and say, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I, I'll never get the job, they won't like me. You act like that. You yeah. know, you mm -hmm. don't have any self-worth. And then if you don't believe in you, no one buys into you either. So it really worked for me being like that until it became real and natural and I really felt like that about myself I felt mm. good about myself and they always say in your job if you do the stuff you're passionate about it will become successful and I wrote affirmation books I've, I'm, I'm on my second affirmation book this year and they've been my best sellers and I think you know when people talk about money and success and people say oh follow the path that you love don't chase money you think well that's easy for you to say but when you arrive and do that you realize yes because those are the most successful projects so mm. yeah yeah, we, we do it at home with the kids. We have like, you know, age appropriate affirmation books for the girls as well. And mm. yeah, I bought my book for you today, actually. Oh, yay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. Do you have yeah. one that you that you go to? Yeah, I do. I mean, I have several. I think um, for me, I still get a little bit anxious. So I am a bit of an overthinker and I can sort of manifest stuff and, and build stuff up that isn't really there. So there's a good one about worrying. Worry is a total waste of time. All it does is steal your joy and keep you very busy doing absolutely nothing at all. And I'm a control freak. So I think by worrying and stressing, I'm getting some kind of gauge and, and, and hold on things. And, and I'm really not. I'm wasting so much energy and I need my energy for everything else so mm. yeah simplifies it for me I think you're a wise woman <laughs> that's a very wise saying that I think everybody should take on board yeah you're a worrier I am yeah I do worry about silly things that I can't do anything about mm -hmm. I worry about you a lot I don't mm. know why because you're fine <laughs> <laughs> but I, do, I don't know why I do it's ridiculous yeah. is, it, is it a parent thing do you I think? think maybe I don't know but I find myself but you should never worry about stuff you can't do anything about it's just that I know, it's a total I know. waste of time total waste of energy yeah. it's crazy mm. Everybody listen to Katie. Just <laughs> listen to Katie. So at the end of each episode, we ask our guests their biggest fail, regret and win. So we'll start with fail. 
My biggest fail became apparent to me in lockdown one. So always in interviews, you know, people would interview me and say, oh my God, you're, you know, you've got the work-life balance so well. You're a mum, you're a businesswoman, you're a charity campaigner. And I would sit there being like, yes, I am. <laughs> and, I, and I thought I had got it um, down to a T because I graded it like, well, I, I rush home from work and I rush upstairs and I rush through the bedtime story and I check my emails and I rush back down and then I eat at the... And I, when I'm ticking on paper, I am always there. And I go to baby ballet and I sit in the car park and I, I reply to all the WhatsApps while she's in the ballet. So I was existing physically doing all the box ticking. And then when we had the pandemic and I had nothing to do, you know, lockdown one literally was everything stopped for me. I realised some uncomfortable home truths of, you know, I didn't really know what the girls' favourite book was. I just knew they read the school books that got sent home. I thought I knew what the favourite toy was. They took to bed, but that had actually changed and I hadn't realised. Oh, and they just went more to my husband for comfort when they needed it, even though I was now there every day. And it was quite painful. And it made me realise, actually, this is the important stuff because when everything else goes, this is what you're left with. Yeah. So I was really failing at that. And I always had this fear of saying no to opportunity and saying no to work. And I think it came from having everything taken away from me at such a young age and feeling like all these things do define us. And I learned it's okay to say no to people. And if they don't come back, so be it. You know, mm, yeah. there is, if you've reinvented yourself once, there are always other ways to be, you know, more than just one, one dimension. So I do feel better now. And I had to go away for sort of three nights in a hotel for work and, it sounds awful, but the kids really cried and I was secretly really glad. <laughs> I like, they want me. Oh. So, I get that, though. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And what about a regret? I was thinking long and hard about this, right, because I don't want to sound cheesy. This is sincere, but I really don't regret. Mm. Um, and I think the reason I don't is because it's all been such a learning curve for me. It's really formed my character. You know, everything that's happened to me, every hardship. And I think for me, the parts where I may feel I went wrong were my only ways to learn lessons and, and yeah. progress. And, you know, I, I talked about how stubborn I was in life. If I could turn back time and have advice from other people, I still wouldn't have listened. So yeah. I had to go and get my own, you know, and, and and I think that about my kids. I mustn't try and say, don't do this, this and this, because I did, because it just doesn't work like that. You know, yeah. people have to live their own experiences. Absolutely. Mm. And, and I think there's nothing wrong with not having any regrets. Yeah. I think it's it's a very good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a boring answer, though, wasn't it? No, yeah. no not at all. Not at all. And finally, what about your win? Mm. I do think it's sharing my story, um, mm. because my mum and dad didn't want me to at first, because they were like, oh... Because now we share everything, don't we, because of social. And some people really share everything, like in the bath, everything, you yeah. know, on the loo. <laughs> um, and my mum and dad were like, oh, no, you mustn't let people into your private life. And especially into our home, it's not safe and it's private. And also my mum was worried about, you know, television and what kind of programme it would be. Would it be sure. sensational? But I think what it did for me is it really eliminated shame for me. You know, there was a uh, for a long time where I felt quite embarrassed and that everything that happened to me was my fault and that people that had been burnt through no fault of their own might not like me, you know, might, might feel angry at me. So it helped me get rid of that. It gave me genuine confidence because it wasn't like TV as in starry TV. It was me being filmed having treatments, me with no makeup on. And there's something about showing the world the real you in your worst vulnerable state 
that then makes it okay just to be normal. And, you know, actually people weren't tuning in for anything other than just my authentic self. And I think that was good for proper confidence and self-worth. And, you know, something that not everybody's comfortable talking about, but I must be honest about, it really empowered me financially, you know, making that program. Absolutely. It was a stepping stone to having book deals, other endorsements, having a career. And I was able to buy a house and have financial security, not Mm -hmm. depend on anybody else, not depend, you know, on my parents for the rest of my life and pay them back because they had supported me for so long. And I think that's that's extremely important. Yeah. You know, in this country, we don't talk about stuff like that, do we, no, really? No. But you're She's absolutely right. And, and, it's, mm-hmm. and it means security. You're right. Yeah. It, it gives you power yeah. in a good way. When I say power, you know, it gives you power for yourself. You know, it gives you security and confidence and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Mm. Katie, what a joy. Thank uh, you so much. I, I feel like I could just talk to you. <laughs> I know, we could keep going. Yeah.